Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to subscribe to this podcast. If you're anything like me, then you have a whole bunch of podcasts that you find really valuable for your life. But if you don't subscribe, then you probably don't listen to those podcasts. Subscribing is free, and if you'll do it, then every Tuesday after we upload these sermons online, you'll get a little notification from your podcast player telling you that we have a new episode online. And so I really, really do hope that you'll subscribe. I think it would be helpful for you in remembering to listen to these sermons. At the same time, if you find these sermons to be valuable, then I also would hope that you would leave us a rating and or review. I was recently reminded about the power of sermons going out into the internet. On Instagram, we asked a question, how did you hear about our church? And we were surprised when somebody simply responded by saying podcast. And so we probed a little bit further and this woman had searched for something specific in a podcast player and she had found our sermons and she's been listening to them ever since. Here's the reality. When you leave a rating and review on our podcast, it helps for more stories like this to happen. It helps more people find our sermons and listen to them, and hopefully then they are impacted by the things that we preach. And so I just hope that you'll consider at least taking just a minute to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast at. We would sincerely appreciate it. Again, I thank you for listening, and I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I'm always desperate for God, and I think most of you would say that, but sometimes I feel desperate for God. Maybe you, you kind of can follow me in this. Maybe you know what that's like. I mean, theologically, like I would always say I'm desperate for God. If you said, are you desperate for God right now? I'd say, oh yes, absolutely. But there are times in life when, when you really sense that you're desperate for God, that you feel desperate for God, that you are more desperate for God than you normally are. I mean, I love this song, Lord, I Need You. Do you know this song? It says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Uh, But we know that sometimes we feel that a little more than maybe we just believe it. I think that sometimes we feel desperate for God, even if we always believe that we are desperate for God. I point back to this all the time in my life, but uh, uh, there's been a couple of periods where it just seems like so many things just added up and were difficult. I mean, uh, the year that I was uh, getting uh, married, I believe, or maybe it was the year leading up to my engagement, one of those two things. Had, uh, anyway, it won't matter, but my great-grandma, who was like a mother to me, died. I was diagnosed with MS. I, I was going to school and pastoring and teaching and coaching basketball, and it just all, some of that good, some of that bad, but it all just kind of snowballed into this feeling of like barely keeping your head above water, barely barely staying alive, you know, at least in a metaphorical sense. Right before our daughter Hazel was born, so four years ago now, and I talk about this a lot too, uh, it, it was a it was just a wild time. Like uh, our dog that was like our child before we had kids, he died suddenly. 
Uh, we spent a lot of money on vet bills trying to figure out what was wrong with him, and then, and then he died, and as it turns out, it's not very cheap for a dog to die, especially in urgent care, and, um, and then both of our cars went bad. One of them we had just purchased, and the transmission went bad, and, and that's the one we purchased on a recommendation of the buyer we were buying from, like somebody had told us, oh, this is my uncle or whatever, and uh, don't ever listen if somebody says, this is my uncle. Uh, and uh, and then you know so we have these cars go bad. We're like, what are we? What are we even driving? And my wife is eight months pregnant in the summer, which is awful from what I hear. And and then and then all of a sudden, like we're about to have this baby, you know. And it's like you really you just you're like we are really desperate for God to do something, you know. And, and I think like we all we all have those points where we as they say, we come to the end of our rope. It's like we've been hanging on as long as we can. We've been fighting and fighting and fighting. And, and, and it's like, I don't know if I can fight anymore. And uh, today's sermon is about uh, something that we might do in the midst of, of those moments where we feel like we've come to the end of our rope. And here, here's what it's going to be. Ready? You're not going to see this coming and you're not going to like it. But uh, it's this fasting. Uh, that's abstaining from food from, for those of you that don't know. Uh, and I know it's, it's like two weeks ago I preached on giving money and now I'm trying to take your food. You know, Chad's just trying to take our money and our food. What's going on around here? Uh, but, uh, but this is what we seem to see in the Bible. Fasting demonstrates our desperation for God. Fasting, abstaining from food demonstrates our desperation for God. And here's what's so magnificent and weird and problematic and confusing is that it seems like frequently in the scriptures God responds in a unique and powerful way when his people out of desperation choose to fast. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're continuing in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest recorded sermon in the Bible. It's three whole chapters. Last year we did chapter five. This year I'm going through chapter six. I'm guessing that next year we'll do chapter seven. And we're kind of in the middle of chapter six. And, and he goes from talking about praying into this great line right here. When you fast, when you fast, now for us as modern day American Christians, it's just not something that most people have done. It's not something that's a normal part of our culture. And so let me back up again. Fasting is abstaining from food, but that's usually done for a religious purpose. Now, I know that we talk now about intermittent fasting and our health, and that's a big thing right now. Uh, and so we kind of do this whole fasting thing for health purposes. But when I talk about fasting from here on out in this sermon, and usually when we talk about fasting, at least in the church, we are talking about abstaining from food for a religious purpose. Now, it's not food and water. Let me just make that clear. There are two instances of miraculous fasts in the scriptures. The very first fast that we read about in scripture, the first person doing a fast is Moses, and he fasts from food and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Not physically possible, but it seems to illustrate something that I think is helpful as we move forward in this series. It seems to illustrate that Moses was so strongly in the presence of God. Do you know the story? Moses goes up on this mountain and it's literally on fire because of the presence of God. 
He's getting the Ten Commandments and he abstains from food and water for 40 days and 40 nights without dying. And it seems to say that he was in the presence of God in such a powerful way that it overcame even like the physiological uh, needs that his body had for him. We read kind of that same language in the book of Revelation where it talks about how we'll be in the presence of God so strongly that we won't need light anymore and he'll be our, our living water. And, and so it seems that, that when we're in the presence of God in this unique and powerful way that, that maybe God could overcome our physical needs. But, but I'm not suggesting that. In fact, I'm suggesting against that. I'm saying these are moments in history where God did something really unique and special, something that we probably will never do. The other person is Jesus. And by the way, often Moses is an example of what Jesus will do for us. And Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he fasts without food and water for 40 days and 40 nights just before the start of his ministry. And so we see in these supernatural fasts kind of the first First idea of fasting, I think. Not something we should duplicate, but something that we can, we can look at and go, there's something here about fasting and showing our desire, our desperation for the presence of God. For these people, it overcame their physical needs, the presence of God. But for us, it's a reminder of our need for the presence of God. And it declares our need for the presence of God. Now, here's something else that's really interesting. Fasting is only commanded one time in the Bible. It's connected to the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur today, if you've heard of that in Jewish circles. And they were commanded to fast from food, to abstain from food. Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. Uh, You can read about it there. Wikipedia says about this day, it is the holiest day of the year in Judaism. Its central themes are atonement and repentance. Jews traditionally... Observe this holiday with an appropriate 25-hour period of fasting and intensive prayer, often spending most of the day in synagogue services. And so here we see in how the Jews celebrate this today and what God kind of laid forth, we start to see another part of fasting, that it's usually connected to a time of intense prayer and a time when we are intently focused on God. They spend their whole day in the synagogue. For us, we might spend a whole day in prayer connected to fasting, or a whole day at church, a whole day doing something that's worshipful, that is connected to our need, our desire for God to move in our lives. The Day of Atonement, I mean, it's so clear. We're desperate to be atoned for. We have sin, and, and God declares this fast, and in this fast, we're reminded of our desperation for God to do something about our sin. But we don't need to follow this Old Testament command to fast as non-Jewish Christians. If you're a a non-Jewish Christian or a non-Jewish non-Christian, then you don't need to follow this because what we believe is that Jesus has atoned for our sins, that he came to earth, he died for our sins, he came back to life, and if we will give him our lives, then we are forgiven for those things that we have done wrong, that we as Christians call sin. There's no obligation to follow, to live out the day of atonement. It might be cool to do, but there's no obligation. And I think this is, this is another thing you need to know about fasting that's so interesting. It's not something that we, who are non-Jewish Christians, are commanded ever to do. Fasting, and this is, I like this. I, can't, I was thinking about this this week. There's not many things like this in the Bible. Fasting is something that is portrayed as very good, even helpful, but it's never commanded for us 
to do. It is something that, and I know this sounds weird when we're talking about not eating for a while, it is something that we get to do, not something that we have to do. It is a really important spiritual thing that we don't necessarily need to do, but maybe we should do, and when should we do it? When we are desperate for the movement of God in our lives. Now here's another broad kind of overview. I'll actually look at Jesus' words some more in a second, but here's another broad overview of the Bible. There's five reasons, five categories for why people fast in the Bible. And I think, man, if you're a note taker, this is a good thing to write down. If you're just a, a, a person that remembers everything I say, this is one of those good things to remember. Uh, I mean, this is, there's five reasons here, and I think, man, they can all be connected to our lives today and when we might consider fasting. One, as a sign of grief or mourning. It's common. They're sad, they're distraught, and they say, wow, God, we're, we're desperate for you because we're hurt, so we're just so hurt Two, is a sign of repentance and seeking forgiveness. God, we have sinned against you and we, we want you to forgive us. We are desperate for you to forgive us. And so God, please, I'm sorry. I need help, God. I need help breaking this sin in my life, breaking this chain. And man, I, I, if you're stuck in a sin, if you have a, something that you're addicted to that you can't get over, I mean, the, the people in the Bible, they fasted and said, God, we're desperate for you to break this chain. We're desperate for your forgiveness. For help in prayer. Just simply like, hey, God, I need something. I've been praying about this, but I'm kind of lost for what to pray. I don't know what to say anymore, and it doesn't seem like you're responding, and I really need you to respond, and so, so I'll abstain from food. And in connection to making big decisions, like if you have a life-altering decision before you, like people in the Bible, what they would have done is they would have fasted before this often. So I'm gonna abstain from food and seek God in prayer because I know that this is a big decision that will change the trajectory of my life. And then it's an act of, of public worship, especially as the people made decisions, by the way, for who they would put as, as leaders in their churches. So here's these five big things. Let me read them to you one more time. As a sign of grief or mourning, as a sign of repentance and seeking forgiveness for help and prayer in connection to making big decisions as an act of, of public worship. And, and those things are good, but I, I, like to, I, I like, I think this is good, this is very helpful. In the life of David, we see David fast on some specific occasions and I think those things are helpful for us to kind of put a little bit of meat on those bones that broad picture to look at this one man this individual and to see when he fasted in 2nd Samuel 12 16 it says David pleaded with God for the child he fasted and spent the nights laying in sackcloth on the ground David has committed this, this heinous sin. He has committed adultery with this woman and then he's had her husband killed and, and he's being punished and his son is gonna die, his child is going to die. And in these moments, David turns to fasting, probably in repentance, probably say, God, I am so sorry and I am desperate for your forgiveness, but also because he's desperate for God to save the life of this child. And David fasts. 
In 2 Samuel 3, 35, we read more. It says, then they all came and urged David. This is his people. They urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. This happens after the death of Abner, the commander of Saul's army. And so we see in David's mourning of a, of a public figure, a man who was part of the armies of the living God. That's how David phrased it when he fought Goliath. He, he mourns his death and he does it through fasting. At least partly through fasting. And then in Psalm 35, 13, David says this for his enemies. This is about his enemies. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. He, he wants to see, this is a crazy, I don't know if you'd ever fast for an enemy, but his enemies, the people who are persecuting him, are trying to hurt him, who are trying to kill him. He sees that they're sick and he, he wants God apparently to heal them. And so he fasts in order that that might happen. Now here's this other thing that I, I really think is so fascinating, so interesting. We read this in Psalm 69, 10. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. So apparently people like, I think would happen today. Apparently when David fasted sometimes, the people around him would look at him and they'd make fun of him for fasting. And I, and I can hear it going like this because this is, I mean, I think maybe you, you're looking at me and you're going, well, how are the two connected? How is fasting and desperation for God connected? Like why do these things matter? And I'm not gonna give you a great answer to that. I'm just gonna tell you that it is. But I, I could hear the people around David sounding just like people around you. Like what is not eating gonna do? I mean, you're sad, like, what is it gonna do to not eat? You're trying to stop that sin, like, go have a burrito, who cares, you know? I mean, what does that even, what does it even matter? And David felt, experienced that same thing. He fasted because of his desperation for God and people looked at him and were like, what are you doing, you're an idiot. But he did it anyway. He fasted anyway. Apparently it was important enough to David to express his desperation to God through fasting that even though he endured scorn, he did it anyway. One author says this, by its very nature, fasting seems to suggest that something is wrong. Eating is a normal part of human existence, so abstaining from eating implies a disruption in the very rhythm of life. But it will be seen in this chapter that the Old Testament uses fasting and abstinence from food to point to something even more necessary for life. Communion with and dependence on God. Fasting recognizes that something is wrong in our lives. That something is deeply wrong in our lives. And it also recognizes that more than eating even, we are desperate for the provision and presence of God in our lives. We are desperate for God to do something. Now think about with me just for a second what you do when you feel like you're at the end of the rope. Some people panic, some people break the law, some people do mean things, some people work harder and harder and harder and harder. Uh, we have all of these responses that, that say this, this situation being fixed is dependent upon me. What I'm able to do, what I can accomplish. I can work a little harder, I can pull up my bootstraps, I can make this happen, I'll rob a bank or I'll steal something, you know, I will do whatever. I think so many things that happen, so many of our sins can probably be tied to us feeling desperate 
And then we just say, God, I got this. I'll figure it out. But when we take away, and I think this is what's so cool, and I think this is why fasting is important. When we take away the most basic substance that keeps us alive, and we say, God, I get it. There's no fixing this. There's no helping myself. There's no getting around this. There's no getting better. There's no getting over this. I can't do it. I'm so desperate for you that I'm going to take away this very thing that gives me the ability to do all this other stuff that I might attach to to getting through it myself. I'm so desperate for you to do something I'm not going to eat. Then we take away all of the me and I and, and we just turn our attention and say, okay, it's absolutely up to you, God. We need you to do something. Work. I would say this, and, and given what Jesus says at the end of this passage, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but uh, in the early days of me being the pastor here and Brandon being the music leader at, at our church, uh, and for those of you that don't know, when when we started in these two roles, this church was uh, just about dead. And, and when I became the pastor, I had more than one person tell me, if, if you don't become the pastor of this church, then this church goes away. And they weren't guilt tripping me. They weren't uh, pressuring me. They were just kind of stayed in the facts like factor that into your decision and uh every thursday when we would plan our our worship sets we would fast the entire day uh we would fast and then we would meet and and we would plan our services and and i look back at that now and i don't know if we we knew what we were doing or why we were doing it or whatever but i do think that somewhere inside of us probably we just recognized that the church was in such a state that we were desperate for God to do something different. Not many churches change around momentum. Not many churches come back from the dead. And, and, I, and maybe we could have vocalized that. Maybe not. I don't know. But something in our souls knew that we were desperate for God to move. Now, we are desperate every time we come here on Sundays. We plug in like a hundred things. Uh, and we're desperate that they'll work, right? Like we just want things to go well. And we want lives changed and all of that. But it's not the same. And and we don't fast anymore every Thursday or once a week or anything like that. But there's certain periods in the history of an organization, in the history of nations, in the history of our lives, in the history of our families, when it's appropriate for us to say, we're out of ideas, we're out of options, we just don't know what to do without you. And so we're not going to eat because we're going to demonstrate, God, that we are desperate for you and we are going to pray and we are going to hope that you will move. Now, still you might be going like, okay, that's a crazy plan, but listen, just listen to this passage. Matthew 9, 14 and 15. Jesus is doing ministry, he's walking around the earth, and we read this. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast the same story recorded in mark jesus says when then they will fast in our passage it says when you fast there is this assumption by jesus that once he dies rises and returns to heaven that his people his followers his disciples will abstain from food in order to cry out to god that they are desperate for him to do something in their lives Fasting is talked about some 30 times in the New Testament. It's the part that's written 
after Jesus has come to earth, died, risen again, and gone back to heaven. It's talked about some 30 times, and almost every time it's talked about in a favorable way. Like, this is a good thing. This is something you should do. This should be a part of life. Fasting has been a part, a major part of the life of some of the most incredible spiritual people in the history of the world. Some of the people that we look at and think, why aren't I more like them? Well, they fasted. Maybe that's why. I mean, Moses, David, Elijah, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Anna, John the Baptist, Jesus, Barnabas, Paul, and other religious figures, other Christians who have changed the world like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. They all talk about in their writings fasting, abstaining from food in order to show God, to, to show themselves, I think, too, that they are desperate for God, that they have reached the end of the rope, that they don't have a plan to make things better, but they need a movement of God in their lives. Throughout the history of God's people, God's people have fasted. And I asked the question this morning, why not us? What has happened? The message of the Sermon on the Mount says, some of us live our Christian lives as if these verses have been torn out of our Bibles. Most Christians lay stress on daily prayer and sacrificial giving, but few lay any stress on fasting. Evangelical Christianity in particular, whose characteristic emphasis is on inward religion of heart and spirit, does not readily come to terms with an outward bodily practice like fasting. It shouldn't be. I think what has happened in our heads, I think this is, is maybe how it got twisted somewhere along the way. I haven't gone back and studied through church history to see when fasting fell out of favor with uh, non-Catholic, uh, Protestant Christians. And, but here's my guess is that at some point, we thought it felt a little too Catholic-like. I've noticed this thing as I read church history and as I, as I study Catholicism. Over time, this thing happened after the Reformation. The two sides really just didn't want to look like each other. It became less about belief and more about not looking like each other. Catholics and Protestants have like 97% of their theology are in line. Uh, and there's 3% that I think are a really big deal where we're not in line. Uh, but then there's all this stuff that theologically we don't, we don't have a problem with each other. But in history, it seemed like, just this is my observation. You can correct me later if I'm wrong. But in history, it seems like Catholics really wanted to not look like Protestants. And Protestants really wanted to not look like Catholics. And so some of these things that Catholics do we're just like well we're not going to do that we found great value at this at church and celebrating Ash Wednesday and then fasting in some form after that and and I, a lot of churches don't do Ash Wednesday we accidentally started it because I thought another church was doing it and I thought it sounded like a good idea and it turned out they weren't even doing it but but Ash Wednesday is one of those things it's like this great Christian celebration is the wrong word this great Christian holiday to focus on our need for God but but I think a lot of churches don't practice it because it just feels Catholic now I have to admit that when Catholics fast it's like more food than what I can eat in a day I think it's a little funny a Catholic fast is uh, technically like two normal sized meals and then one big meal or something like that as long as the big meal is not bigger than the two normal sized meals put together it's kind of crazy and when we look at that as Protestants we're like what in the world I think a lot of Catholics are like what in the world <laughs> like that's not fasting that's eating and so we maybe have just gone like I'm not going to be Jewish they fasted and I'm not going to be Catholic I'm over here and we've just taken this thing that is so clearly 
thought of as a good thing in the New Testament said, I'm not going to do it at all. Or, or maybe you've never thought about it because leaders have said, we're not going to do that at all. But I think we should consider fasting. I think you should consider fasting. I think that if you are at the end of your rope, whether you are mourning, you are repenting from your sin, you are desperate for God to say yes to a prayer, you need guidance on a big decision, I think in all of those things, you should fast. And I should mention that fasting almost every time is connected to prayer in the New Testament. So you shouldn't only fast, but you should fast and then you should pray. You should fast and then you should pray. Now that fast can look, I mean, that could look like a million things, but whatever it looks like, it needs, it needs to be about you declaring to yourself and to God above that you are desperate for him to move in your life. I tell you, I, uh, I have a mentor that was, he, he knew that his dissertation for his doctorate degree was going to be a big deal. You know, that's gonna set kind of the course of his expertise and all of these things. And, and the night before, he prayed and fasted all night and said, God, I want you to tell me what you want me to write my dissertation on. You tell me what, I, what I'm gonna write this thing on. And God did. And I wonder how many directions we've gone, how many times we've gone the wrong direction because we haven't. We've just said, oh, I'll make the best of two choices. Well, I'll just kind of make a guess that what's, you know, the better thing. And maybe God is looking for us to say, I'm desperate for you. Maybe there's a sin in your life and you're just, you're stuck in that sin and you can't break it and you've prayed. But maybe, you know, you've gone, I, I kind of need you, God, but not really. And maybe fasting could just be this moment where you say, no, I'm totally and utterly desperate for you to do work. Maybe you've prayed for a, a healed and fixed relationship and this relationship is broken and it's, you know, whether it's their fault or your fault, you don't know, but you just, you can't, you can't make it better and you've tried and you've apologized even though you're not that sorry and you can't do anything. Maybe this is your moment to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna empty myself both physically and metaphorically to cry out in desperation to God and ask him to move. Now let me just say, it's not a magical yes bullet. You can't fast and get the million dollars that you've always wanted. But it does seem, as we read through the scriptures, that God does respond in a unique and powerful way to his people when they abstain from food out of their desperation for him. But we must fast rightly. What does this mean? Well, uh, before we look at that, let me read a quote from John MacArthur. By the time of Christ, fasting, like almost every other aspect of religious life, had been perverted and twisted beyond what was scriptural and sincere. Fasting had become a ritual to gain merit with God and attention before men. So here's what Jesus says in response to that in Matthew 6, 16. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. I'll tell you this. I really don't want to not eat and then not get my reward. <laughs> like, of all the things, I would rather give money. Uh, I would rather pray. Uh, but I would really, the idea of giving up food for a day and then not getting, not having God do anything is, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a very good trade-off to me. I like Mexican food way too much for that. But here's the situation. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. That's incredible, right? I mean, every week they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, which is amazing. Jesus alludes to it in Luke 18, 12, actually. 
He was connected to the days that Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments the first time and then the second time. But here's something very interesting. They thought they were emulating the approach to God that Moses had in his holiness. But what was really happening in in real life is that they were doing it in order to be seen by others. Monday and Thursday also happened to be very public market days. They were the days when the markets were most full for people because of Jewish religious laws and all of those things. And so the Pharisees on Mondays and Thursdays not only were connecting themselves to Moses, but they were also giving themselves the best audience. And as we talked about last week and the week before, they were hypocrites. And what hypocrite meant for Jesus is they put on a show. And when it came to fasting, man, oh man, did they put on a show. They didn't shower. They were unkempt. They put on ashes to make themselves look worse. And they probably walked around with faces like this. You know, just like, I am too hungry. Look at me. I am awful. Everything is bad. And what Jesus is saying here is if you are fasting in order that other people might know about it, then you're not going to be rewarded for it. There's other ways that we can fast and have no effect in our lives or God's response to our lives. Zechariah 7, 5, and 9, and 10 says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. In Isaiah 58, 3 and 4, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. The same idea comes up in Jeremiah 24, 12. It's basically this. God does not care one bit about your fasting if you're not actually trying to live your life for him. If you're like, hey God, I, I want help breaking this sin. I repent, but you're not trying at all. And then you just say, well, I'm gonna fast. That'll fix it. God does not like that. God does not care. If you're a person, and you can even connect this to this, who's saying, well, I'm gonna fast, but you aren't willing to help the poor and the broken in the world. I'm gonna abstain from food, but I'm not gonna give that food I would have eaten to you. Then God does not care about your fast. Fasting is not some magic bullet where like, I'm not really doing anything for God, but maybe if I don't eat for a day, there's something supernatural and magical will happen in my spiritual life. When you fast, it's you saying, God, I am desperate for you. I wanna live for you. I wanna be with you. I wanna do your will and your work in my life. And so out of response to that, I fast. We response uh, we, we fast in response to our desperation for God. We don't fast so that we'll become desperate for God. We fast because we want to do the will of God. We don't just fast and hope that we'll want to do the will of God. We fast because we're seeking forgiveness, not because we just want the ability to keep sinning and feel better about ourselves. When we fast, Jesus tells us, we can't do it for the eyes of men, but the whole of scripture says when we fast, it must be real desperation for God, not some magic bullet that says, I'll do what I want still, God, but I hope that if I do this, you'll kind of make up the difference. Instead, Jesus says in Matthew six eighteen, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Putting on oil is not some uh, religious thing. There are passages of that in the Bible. In fact, one that's very interesting in the book of James, we've only done this once at a church, but in the book of James, it talks about how if you're sick, and, and really it's talking about spiritual sickness there. A lot of people miss that. If you're spiritually sick and you come to the end of the rope, you're struggling spiritually and you just don't think you can keep going, it says come to the elders and have them pray over you and anoint their head. And the elders are supposed to anoint the person with oil. We did that once at our church. And I'm glad to say today that that person is living their lives for Jesus, their life for Jesus, that they are doing well. But, but this here is not that. It's not that anointing of oil that, that we sometimes connect to our prayers instead this is just about doing your hair brushing your teeth it was a normal part of grooming Jesus is saying when you fast go about your normal business look like you do on every other day of the week especially he says uh, this grooming thing was done especially by the way I should say uh, for important formal occasions and so don't don't just kind of get ready for the day don't just wear the yoga pants girls like actually put the jeans on and go out in public and look like you're ready to go to work that is sorry if you're wearing yoga pants right now um you're fine you can wear whatever you want here that's what jesus is saying like you should not show anybody that you're fasting because when you fast, what are you demonstrating? Your desperation for God. But when you're just putting on a show, there's no demonstration of your desperation for God. You're simply putting on a show so that people look at you and you go, wow, that person's so religious. Look how, look how great they are. Look how, I mean, they're willing to give up food for Jesus. That's incredible. We should not show people that we are fasting because we only fast for God. But here's what I love about this. If you do it that way, then, then your father, your father, your heavenly dad who is unseen and who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. There's a guarantee of reward here. Now that doesn't mean you're gonna get whatever you want say that again it doesn't mean the reward is this will happen like my sin is broken my I'm no longer mourning or no longer sad I have what I need you know I that relationship is healed that thing is fixed it doesn't mean that but there is a promise of reward and I would say that the whole of scripture man and this is broad and and I I feel like I need to tread lightly, but the whole of Scripture seems to suggest that if we'll fast in a right and good way, th- then, it, then it elevates God's response and, and getting the things that we are asking for. But even if we don't, even if we don't, there's a promise of reward. And I think that, that these promises probably, the rewards are just like his presence, his provision, his answer to prayer, his power, his help through the things that we're dealing with. I think that we'll get something, we will, we, we will get something out of fasting as we declare our desperation to God. That's big, right? Because here's the deal, here's what I could see. You fast one time, <laughs> And you go, well, that didn't work. You know, I mean, the bills still do and I didn't get the money that I needed. That just, that was a failure. And then you just give up the practice and you never do it again. But Jesus says you're going to be rewarded. And the reward might just be, man, you feel closer to God. The reward might be like you, you're reminded of his promises that he will take care of you no matter how bad things see. Seem. The reward might be heavenly. Someday I'll get something in heaven. Like this is gonna be better off in heaven because of what I've done here. 
It might be just his power to get through it. Just I can keep going. You just go, well, I'm at the end of my rope. But then I fasted and I prayed and I moved up the rope. I'm still struggling and I'm still fighting. But at least I, I'm not at the end anymore because God's power has, has come into my life in a new way. I don't, I don't know what the reward will be, but you need to pay attention. Jesus says, if you'll do it rightly, then you will be rewarded. I'll say again, if you're, are you mourning? Then fast. Are you repenting? Fast. Are you desperate for God to say yes to your prayers? Fast. You need guidance for a big decision fast this should be something that we do and what if what if all of us together what if all of us like as a church we just said we'll do this at some point a church fast can be to express sorrow for sin seek community forgiveness to concentrate on the work of God and to seek his guidance and man I think we're going to call a fast sometime after the holiday seasons. I won't do it to you in November and December, but sometime after the holidays, we're going to call a fast at this church because, because we are desperate for God, and I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes, and we need to declare it sometimes. We're desperate for God. All of our best plans mean very little if God is not behind them. And so, so here's, here's what I'm asking for you. If you're a person who is at the end of your rope right now who knows that this is the moment that you're desperate for God and your health allows, then I would just say, pick a day and fast. Fast and then carve out extra amount of time to spend it in prayer, asking God for whatever you need, whatever it is that you want him to do in your life. If you're not at the end of your rope, if you're a person who feels good right now you came in here and none of this is applied at all I would just tuck this sermon away just put it in your head somewhere and and when life gets hard again which it will when you feel like things are going badly like things are difficult uh, then remember this sermon and say hey maybe it's time for me to abstain from food to declare my desperation for God to move in this situation or this thing Let's be a church filled with people who fast. Let's be a church that fasts when it's appropriate. Let me pray that we will be. Lord Jesus, we are desperate for you. Uh, we forget that far too often. And I thank you, God, that uh, I think by your uh, divine direction, God, we've, we've been uh, reminded in this last month quite a bit about our need for your provision and, and your presence in our lives, our celebration of Sukkot. It's all about that every year, God. But also in this sermon today, you drew us back to that. Uh, remind all of us that, God, we are, as the song says, uh, we are in need of you always, Lord. Every hour we need you. But, Lord, when we are, when our backs are against the wall, when we're caught between a rock and a hard place, when we're at the end of our rope, whatever other cliche I can throw in there, when we're in those moments, God, I pray that, that we would especially remember our desperation for you. And God, we would fast if we can, God, if we're healthy enough to do that, help us to fast and to pray. Let us be a church, God, filled with people who fast and let us be a church that fasts. Remind us, God, that's the last thing. Remind us of that even. Like if we're just, I, I think that one of the things that will happen from this sermon, this, maybe your spirit's laying on my heart right now, is, is we'll just forget and, and we'll feel desperate for you and we'll try a bunch of stuff, but we'll forget. And so I pray specifically, God, that you would remind us to fast when we are desperate for you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.